sure. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, this passage is a dense passage, and it is a it's there's a lot in this passage. And I have to admit, if you were this wouldn't be your first choice of passage if you were coming to a church for the first time to preach. <laughs> I don't know anyone who's gone, what should I preach? Romans 11, hardening of Israel, you know, God's doing a, a work there and Israel may be coming back to like, it's There's full on stuff in there. I don't know um, if, if anyone would choose. However, it is the Word of God and I like few things more than talking from the Word of God. Um, and so I'm sure it has something to say to us even today. And Romans is my favourite book in the Bible, if you're allowed to have a favourite book in the Bible. Uh, I do feel some pressure um, preaching from this book whenever I, I speak from this book. And the pressure comes from John Calvin, many centuries ago, who wrote this about Romans. With regard to the excellency of this epistle, I know not whether it would be well for me to dwell long on the subject. For I fear lest through my recommendations falling far short of what they ought to be, I should do nothing but obscure its merits. <laughs> so you can't really say anything just in case you obscure its, methods, its merits. Hopefully that I don't. And he goes on to say, This can with truth be said of it, and it is that which can never be sufficiently appreciated, that when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has entrance open to him to the, all the most hidden treasures of Scripture. So we should pray that even this morning we would have another treasure open to us from Scripture. Um, let, me, let me offer that quick prayer to, to the Lord. Father, we do come before this passage, obscure in some ways, but we anticipate excitedly that you would open up another treasure, um, that we would learn from it, make it live to us even now. Amen. So the title, the title Garth gave me for this um, chapter is this. Has God lost the battle? Is there a future for Israel? Now they are massive questions. I mean, massive, massive questions. But they're not both questions I assume that everyone's been asking. I don't know if anyone stayed up late last night tossing and turning in their bed unable to sleep because they're worried about the future of Israel. Um, I, think, I think it was a bigger question in maybe generations gone past with you know, books and movies like the Left Behind series, if you remember that, and, and Hal Lindsay's The Late Great Planet Earth. It was a big question. They had big views on what will the future of Israel be. Um, but I don't think it's a massive question that we ask ourselves now, at least not in my age group, that we, we wonder too much about... But I think we do wonder about the first bit sometimes. Has God lost the battle? And we just got to live long enough to begin to... Sometimes something will happen and, ask, and we have to ask, is God winning here? Like, you just watch the news or something comes up, you, you wonder... Is this winning or is this losing? What, what's happening here, God? Are you in control? And we sometimes we're a bit lost for words. Um, and so I think this, this passage is really helpful because it brings the two together. The two are linked. If, if, if God loses when it comes to his covenant people, Israel, if he loses when it, when it comes to that, then how can we be sure that he will win in other ways? How can we be sure that he's winning in anything else if he cannot win with his own people, um, his Old Testament covenant people? Um, 
And so that's sort of what Romans 11 is about. Now, Romans 11 is, comes at the end of a section in Romans from Romans 9 through to 11. So I'm sort of coming in at the end of this section. So we just need to do a, a quick background um, so we're brought up to date, okay? Romans chapters 1 to 5, Paul laid out the gospel, Paul's gospel. And for him it's all associated with justification by faith. Justification by faith. Um, Romans 5 verse 6 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Notice what Paul's saying there. Christ dies at the right time. The perfect time Christ dies. What made it the perfect time? Not us. What were we when the perfect time came? While we were weak, while we were ungodly, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. So in verse 9, he continues in chapter 5, Since therefore we have now been justified, that's the key word, justification, justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's justification by faith. That God looks at the guilty, you and I, at all our sin and our rebellion and our thinking we are better than God and replacing God with creation, creation over creator from Romans chapter 1. All our pride and our arrogance and he looks at the guilty and he says, not guilty. Now we're going to start there because that's the good news. That God looks at me and you, anyone who puts their faith in Jesus and says, I see no sin in that man. I see no sin in that woman. And even now, he's just, I just want to, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I didn't get what I deserved. Which this verse says is the wrath of Almighty God. So what does this, I mean, how does this happen? The verse says, by his blood. No mention there of me and my fixing myself up and my better behaviour and my intelligence and my and nothing of that, my church attendance, my baptism, my, anything of that, by his blood um, we were saved. That Christ on the cross took the punishment that we deserved um, for our sin. Um, and that is the good news what it's, it's all about it's not what I must do and what I, you know what I have done and what I must do but what he has done and that is he has died on the cross on a cruel Roman cross and we've sung so many good songs about that this morning and even communion were reminded of that so that's a scandalous gospel it's a scandal because there's not another religion in the world that will offer that kind of grace another religion will say improve yourself do these good things and in our religion Jesus comes and says I've done it for you uh, but questions happen. Questions occur from that kind of a message. That's what Romans chapter 6 through to chapter 11 is about, answering questions. So Romans chapter 9 through to 11 is answering the question to do with Israel. What's the go with Israel now? Um, because they've largely rejected Jesus. Um, God's covenant people have not responded to the sending of the Messiah and so the questions come. Um, is God faithful to his promises to Israel? Can we trust this God? Um, because it doesn't seem, it seems like there, there's been a massive rift. Okay? And, and so Paul goes about answering that and in chapter 9 he talks about, no, 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 no. God is not, God, God is not unfaithful to Israel. Um, he's done what he's always done. He has chosen some and not chosen others. That's the divine sovereignty of God. 
And in the chapter 10, I mean, if, if chapter 9 emphasises the sovereignty of God, chapter 10 emphasises the responsibility of human beings. Has God been unfaithful? No, no, no. Humans have been unfaithful. And so we come to chapter, or the last verse of chapter 10 ends on this really harrowing note, I think, indictment against Israel. It says, but of Israel, he says, that's God, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And so the question is, you know, what's the future for Israel? God's got his hands out and they're rebellious and they're not coming to him. Is there any hope for Israel? And so chapter 11 comes along. Um, The chapter is broken up into three sections, past, present and future. So past, verses 1 to 10. Um, I ask then, has God rejected his people? My, My Bible says, by no means. Of course not. Of course he hasn't. And Paul goes on to give a few reasons for why that's the case. First reason is his personal testimony. For I myself, and I'm in Israel, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. As Paul says, clearly God hasn't rejected everyone. Look at me. I'm a full-blown Jew, um, kosher Jew, and I'm a Christian. I believe in Jesus. So clearly he hasn't rejected everyone. And so he says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And if if you were back in the day and you were listening to this being read out, this whole book of Romans, you would hear that word foreknew and I think you would remember back to another key time it was used, foreknew. Back in Romans chapter 8, you remember? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and it follows a chain. Um, he, those he called, those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the point being, there's nothing lost in that chain. The ones God foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies. None lost in that whole chain. So has God rejected his people? No, no, no. He foreknew them. Then they will be glorified in the end. Um, So has God rejected his people? No. Another reason in verse 2b. So he begins, do you not know? And I just, I love how Paul does that sometimes. He's answering questions. He goes, do you not know? Really? You don't know this? You've forgotten? You're not aware? Um, he, does, he does this a few times and I think that comes at our sort of anti-intellectual age that we're in, that knowing isn't, you know, you can't know things. No one knows. Um, and even in the, you know, sometimes we look down on like theology and hard work in the Bible, um, studying it because knowledge is, it can puff up. Um, but I think the Word of God says, you know, we, there is things to know and we should know. And Paul comes and says, don't you know? And what do we need to know? What the scripture says. That's a good start. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. So Paul feels a bit like Elijah did back in his day. We can't go back there and look at it in time but... Paul feels alone, like Elijah did, and he's wondering, is there anyone else? Am I the only one? Um, And God answers both Elijah and Paul, says, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. 
But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. The point is, Paul, God's done what he's always done. That there's always been a truer Israel within the people of God, a remnant, a faithful remnant. Um, And although a, a lot of by and large the, the, the nation of Israel was wicked he chose some it was, was there anything special about this group? no there's nothing special about this group they were chosen by grace otherwise they would be just the same as everybody else um, so nothing but the grace of God saved this remnant so he goes on to give another reason in verse 7 and following he shows that the hardening of Israel was predicted in the Old Testament um, so what then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. So they were hardened just as Pharaoh was hardened, if you remember in the series from chapter 9, that Pharaoh was hardened and much the same, Israel have seen mighty acts of God and yet they've remained stubborn hardened against God. And so the quote here that, that, that's taken is taken from Deuteronomy 29 and Isaiah 29. It's sort of meshed together to, for this quote. And it's quite a, I mean, it hits you, doesn't it? Um, it it's quite, I don't know, offensive to the 21st century mind, I think, when, when we first read it. But Paul sees God doing the similar thing that what he has done in the past. In Deuteronomy, in Isaiah's time, he sees God doing that hardening work that he had done previously. Um, But yet even then, in those passages, in the Deuteronomy passage and in the Isaiah passage, there is a note of hope. That there's this, you know, inkling of hope mingled in amongst these these hardening passages. So in, in Isaiah 29 verses 17 to 18... In amongst it says this it is not is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see so you see that there's some hope there seems seems to be some kind of hope for Israel that this hardening thing isn't the last word for this nation, okay. And so Paul picks up on that. Um, and the next quote comes from Psalm 69. It continues in our, back to Romans 11. And David says, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. And again, it's just, it's just humbling words, isn't it? Um, but this quote builds on the one just before it and speaks about how God has reversed, has reversed the fortunes of Israel. That this table that they once enjoyed, this table of privilege, of enjoyment with God the Father, um, has now become a snare to them. This table where they had such great joy and feasting and they were just so blessed and it is reversed against them, it's become a snare um, now they have eyes that will not eyes are darkened, their backs are bent. So that's the first section past. Um, and it's a sad it's, it is a sad note to it, isn't it? So we come to the present, verses eleven to twenty four. Verse eleven. So I ask, 
Did they stumble in order that they might fall? You see, the result of stumbling, you know, when we, when we stumble, we fall, right? But sometimes we fall and we don't get back up. Um, and the older you get, the harder it is to get back up. Now, I'm young, I'm pretty young, I'm, <laughs> I'm 27, nearly 28. Um, and last weekend, it's, we were playing soccer and I hurt my ankle. And so, even now, I've got a little bit of a limp and a swollen ankle. Uh, and, but people started saying to me, because I'm one of the older ones in the team, they started saying, oh, he's struggling to run around with the young fellows now. I didn't really like that. <laughs> but the reality is, I used, to, you know, I used to be able to bounce back from an ankle injury. Now I've really sore ankle. <laughs> um, and the reality is, as we get, you know, we get older and time increases, it's harder to get back up. And eventually we fall in such a way that we don't get back up. So this is the question for Israel. Have they fallen for so long? Will they ever get back up again? You know, is there hope for this Israel? Is it a temporary hardening? Like, will they ever rise from where they are? And please, Paul, tell us that it's, that it's not true. Um, and so Paul answers this imaginary questioner and says, by no means. And he gives two reasons for their stumbling. Um, and he goes on, yeah, two reasons. Their stumbling had a purpose. It wasn't just stumbling for no reason. Um, verse 11b. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. There's two things there. Firstly, their failure made way for a Gentile success. Okay? So, we see this in the book of Acts all the time. Paul going into a new city and he goes and preaches the gospel. Where does he go to first? Synagogues. Yeah, the Jews. And he goes there and what would their, invariably the reaction would be, get out of our synagogue. We don't want to hear that message and they reject the Messiah, they reject Jesus. And so what does he do? He turns to the Gentiles and they receive it. And so Paul's saying that the rejection of the Jews leads to the salvation of the Gentiles. And it's the same thing, again, the, the Pharaoh parallel. Remember in chapter 9, Pharaoh was hardened and it led to the salvation of Israel in Egypt. And it's the same thing happening again. Israel at this time hardened and it's led to the salvation of the Gentiles. So that's the first reason. But secondly, he also adds that the Gentile salvation was meant to make the Jews jealous. So the, the, the Jews would reject it, the Gentiles would be saved, they would receive the Holy Spirit and, and the Jews would get jealous and they'd be like, oh, we once had that, we want that again. These Gentiles are enjoying what we used to have with the Father, uh, but now even more so because they have the Holy Spirit living within them. Um, and so they're supposed to you know, provoke jealousy. And I guess that's a real good challenge for us. Hey, do we live and have such a relationship with God that makes people jealous of what we got? Um, and so verse 12 continues. Now if their trespass means righteous riches sorry, for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion be? So it's an argument from greater to lesser. If God can achieve so much through their rejection and their rebellion, he can achieve such a glorious thing like the, the salvation of the Gentiles, then imagine what God could do with their inclusion. The, the Israel's coming back to Jesus, going back to God. And again, there's a little hint of hope for Israel, I think, um, that maybe this hardening isn't the last thing for them. 
that there might be some kind of inclusion. Um, so verse, we continue, verse 13. Now if I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them, which is what we just talked about. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean by life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So the point of those last two illustrations is to make the point that what is true of the smaller section will eventually become true of the larger section, of the larger entity. So what was true of the, the dough will become true of the lump. And what was true of the root will become true of the branches. What was true of the remnant of Israel will become true of the nation. So again, a little hint. He doesn't say that remnant, last bit of remnant, but there's a hint of hope that, oh, okay, maybe the dough will spread to the lump. Maybe the root will spread to the branches. And so there's an inkling of hope. Verse 17. But if some of the branches were cut off, and you, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches that support you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So Paul continues with this tree illustration. He thinks he's onto something good here with this tree thing and so he expands the illustration. Um, and gets into a bit of horticulture, which I'm not really into horticulture, but I think I can understand what Paul's saying. Um, and what he's trying to do, basically what he's trying to do is undercut the pride of the Gentiles. Because um, in the Roman church, which was probably mostly Gentile, there become sort of um, division and fighting between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the heart of it was, you know, the Gentiles were saying to the Jews, they were just wanting the Jews just to move over. That we're, the new, we're the new, God's favourites now. Move over, Jews. You've had your time. It's our time. Um, and, and, so, and, you can, and besides, we're a bit sick of you and all your law-keeping. You know? Move over, Jews. We're the favourites now. And Paul wants to undercut that kind of pride um, with this talking about the plants. So, what's he talking about? Basically, a Jewish tree. There's, there was a Jewish tree... And what's happened is that these wild olive shoots, which is the Gentiles, have been grafted into the Jewish tree. And so he's saying, Gentiles, remember, remember what's just happened here. What he hasn't said is that the farmer came along, chopped down the old tree, planted a new tree. That's what the Gentiles wanted to hear. There's a new tree, we're the tree. No, 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 Gentiles, be very careful. You were grafted into a Jewish tree with Jewish roots. Um, do not be arrogant. Know your history. Know your Old Testament, um, Gentiles. Um, and so he continues, verse 20b continues, So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. So Gentiles, instead of boasting in the face of your Jewish friends, instead what should they do? 
fear. That's the answer to their pride, fear. Why fear? Because if God was willing to break off branches of his own covenant people, do you really think he's going to spare you Gentiles if you stumble? And so note then Gentiles the kindness and the severity of God. Not either or, both. The kindness and the severity of God. And I think we tend to one or the other sometimes. Um, And I think in my generation, the people I come into contact with, we have so lost any sense of the severity of God. No concept that God hates our sin. He hates our arrogance and and boastfulness. Um, God is treated more like, I don't know, like a pal or a mate or something like that. And we've lost the sense that he will he will judge um, and so Gentiles us Gentiles we should be very careful um, to remember the severity of God that if we should fall we should fall away he will not spare us either um, but then there are others I think and they seem to ignore it's, it's, it's a weird thing they seem to ignore the kindness of God and some some groups are seem to have some kind of weird enjoyment of God's judgment that yeah he should judge them and no grace no, 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 no sense of the kindness of God that he is so kind so loving um, and so wonderful and, the, and that's what the Gentiles were like back then they, they'd forgotten about God's kindness um, to the Jews um, you look back in you look back in Romans chapter 9 at the start of Romans chapter 9 and you, I think Paul just gives a fantastic example of what our heart should be for the lost. Not, oh yeah, God judged them. That's, that is anti-gospel and um, anti what Paul is like in Romans chapter 9 verse 1. Hear his broken heart for the lost. He says this, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's the attitude we should have towards unbelieving Jews and unbelieving people everywhere. Unceasing anguish, broken heart. And Paul, I mean, I read this, I go, Paul, can you really mean that? Do you mean that? Because sometimes it feels foreign to me. But Paul, do you mean that accursed? I wish myself accursed, cut off from Christ. I mean, Paul knows what he's talking. He knows. Do you know what he's saying, Paul? I think he does know what he's saying. And that's why he says at the start, because he, he knows we're going to go, can you, you seriously mean that? And so he begins with, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Holy Spirit bears me witness. This is how I feel to my unbelieving brothers. And so it's not, and it comes from knowing both the kindness and the severity of God. Kindness toward the lost, knowing about the severity of God toward the lost. Okay, verse 23. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? It's a simple point. It's just that if God can graft in wild olive shoots into a a tree, then of course he can graft back in the, the original branches. And again, a bit of hope. Maybe Israel may come back to the tree the original tree. And so we come to the future section. Um, Wondering, is there hope for Israel? What will happen? And we'll fly through this. Um, Verse 25 begins, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. So Paul's going to describe a mystery to them and he does it in three stages, okay? First stage, A partial hardening has come from Israel. That's the first stage. Second stage is, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That's the second stage and we've sort of covered that already. But now Paul goes one step further and says this, and in this way all Israel will be saved. So there's not just hope for Israel, it's guaranteed for Israel hope. Um, All Israel will be saved. Now, what does that mean? There are countless articles on this verse (laughs) and you could get lost for many months (laughs) in the articles and the different views on what does Paul mean by all Israel will be saved. Um, I don't know what you think, what you're thinking right now. But um, basically, the two big ideas is, okay, maybe Paul, when he says Israel, what he means is, the fullness of the, you know, the true Israel, the spiritual Israel, um, that all the full number of the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers, all of them will be saved. That whole group. Does that make sense? So, um, and that's possible. I, I don't, I don't go with that one. I'll tell you why. Because um, in the verse just before, it means you'd have to just, you'd have to change the meaning of Israel really suddenly. The verse just before it talks about. Um, uh, the, the partial hardening that comes upon Israel and it's clearly talking about ethnic Israel, you know, the literal people of Israel. So if Paul in the next verse sort of changes it from ethnic Israel to spiritual Israel, the, the real people of God, and he doesn't really indicate that. So that would be hard to... Um, I, I don't understand that. Um, additionally, Paul calls this a mystery. He says, I'm going to describe to you a mystery. And if the mystery is that the people who believe in Jesus are going to be saved, that's not really a mystery, Paul. (laughs) Um, That the elect are going to be saved, that's the biggest anticlimax in all the Bible, I think. I've got a mystery for you, believers are saved. I knew that, Paul. (laughs) So I think think he's talking about ethnic Israel, but we can differ. Um, And so I think what he's saying is, and this one being, I'm not being as definite and sure because it could be wrong but I'm pretty confident okay (laughs) because I think throughout the passage we've seen bits of hope for Israel bits of hope that this hardening won't be the last word on Israel and so when it comes to this section I think this this culminates all these little glimmers of hope we've seen along the way and finally he says all Israel will be saved now there's a lot of mystery about it and you know how that happens when that happens I have no idea And the Bible doesn't say, and when it comes to that, we are getting into speculation about times and dates and things that we just don't know. Um, 
but seems clear that there is hope and that, that one day there will be a great revival amongst Jewish people um, toward the end of time when the full number of the Gentiles have come in. So it says, he quotes, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob and this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There's a massive implication here. Massive implication for how we are thinking about the Jews and evangelising Jews. There is, a, there is a movement out there and it's become more and more popular that we shouldn't evangelise Jews, we should leave Jews alone because there are really two tracks to, to heaven. There are two tracks. There's a Jewish track and there's a Gentile track. Um, and so it's almost racist or it's put as like anti-Semitism to evangelise Jews. Um, and a lot of people are buying into this. Now, let me read from John Stott. John Stott, the great English theologian, he writes this about that. He says, It is understandable that since the Holocaust, Jews have demanded an end to the Christian missionary activity among them and that many Christians have felt embarrassed about continuing it. It is even mooted that Jewish evangelism is an unacceptable form of anti-Semitism. So some Christians have attempted to develop a theological basis for leaving Jews alone in their Judaism. This proposal is usually called two-covenant theology. Two different salvation tracks. The Christian track for the believing remnant and believing Gentiles. Um, and, this, and, the, and the track for historical Israel which relies on God's covenant with them. Does that make sense? Stott continues. Romans 11 stands in clear opposition to this trend because in its insistence on the fact that there is only one olive tree to which Jews and Gentile believers both belong. The irony of this, writes Tom Wright, is that the late 20th century, in order to avoid anti-Semitism, has advocated a position, the non-evangelisation of the Jews, which Paul regards precisely as anti-Semitism. Does that make sense? He's absolutely right. It's not anti-Semitic to want Jews to be saved. That's loving. And, and it's the same for all, our, all, all unbelieving people. That we just want people to be saved. It's not unloving to tell someone about their sin and about their need to repent and come to Jesus. That's love. What's not loving is not telling. Okay. So, Verse 28 to 32 sort of summarise and we'll skip that but sort of summarise what Paul has already said. So we come to the end of the chapter, right? And I'll, summar- I'll conclude now. Um, and whilst in principle I think we can understand what Paul has said so far, uh, in principle, but there is a lot of mystery here. And there's two ways we can go when Paul sort of leads us into great mystery. We can get frustrated and angry and, you know, Oh, I won't read Romans 11 ever again. That's too confusing. Or, you know, or we can gut, we could get angry, or we could just ignore it from now on and just go home, have Sunday lunch and a Sunday nap, and wake up and have forgotten about that way, raving about Romans 11 all day. Or, or we can go the way of Paul, and he writes at the end. This is wonderful words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. See, I can talk and I can talk 
you know, in clever ways about God's hardening of Israel, but who can really understand God's works? Um, we can wax eloquent about the sovereign election of God um, and his choosing of a remnant, inclusion of the Gentiles, but who can fathom the wisdom of God? We can propose that God will remove the hardening of Israel and that they will be included at some time in the future, but how and when we do not know. And that mystery leads us into great worship. Praise God that we don't understand him. Um, we can understand some what he's revealed and that's great. He's very gracious in giving us what we have. Um, but all this theology, I mean this concludes chapter 11 but also concludes chapters 1 through to 11. This has all been theology. Now he's going to get into practical next week. Um, and and, and the, the result of all this theology of Paul's in-depth analysis of big words like justification, sanctification and propitiation and redemption and all these things culminate in this worship for Jesus. Um, Not mind-boring theology. The theology should lead to doxology, to worship. So let me pray. Father, we thank you that your last word is always mercy. And to people like ourselves who realise our sin and and our idolatry and choosing other things over you, we repent again uh, before you. We're remembering your kindness and your severity, but resting that your last word is mercy to us. We pray for Jewish people everywhere, for Israel, that they might be saved. less concerned with land and things like that and more with their hearts that that more and more people would turn to Jesus and we await with bated breath for that day when you do return. Come Lord Jesus. We love you so much. Thank you for dying for us. Amen.